Happy Wednesday. I'm Tamara Crawford here with Vina Orden, and this is the Lift Up Podcast, inviting you to discover empowering reads by marginalized writers. In this episode number six, our penultimate episode of the season, we're discussing two amazing books, The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin and Friday Black by Nana Kwame Adeje Brenna. Friday Black, published in 2018, is a collection of short stories that defy genre conventions with an almost black feel to them. Some are set in a recognizable present day and others hint at near futures. Ajay Brenya presents this bleak reality in unexpected ways, at times with humor, always with empathy, and prods us to work past indifference and complacency to imagining and creating the world we want to live in now. It has been listed by Publishers Weekly along with the New York Post as one of the best books of the week, as well as named by BuzzFeed and the Huffington Post as one of the top releases of fall 2018. It was mentioned in various periodicals, such as the Harvard Crimson, Kirkus Reviews, and Newsday for its ingenuity in illuminating characteristics of American society with humor and empathy. Additionally, the National Book Foundation named Nana Kwame Adeje Brenna among their five under 35 authors for 2018, chosen by author Colson Whitehead. And Friday Black was included in the long list for the Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction. It was also the recipient of the 2019 Penn Gene Stein Book Award and shortlisted for the 2019 Dylan Thomas Prize. The City We Became, published in 2020, is the first installment in the upcoming The Great Cities trilogy. Set in a parallel universe in present-day New York City, it is close to our hearts as New Yorkers. Each borough is embodied by an avatar to which Jemison is a physical manifestation of the borough's soul, a protector and repository of its history, an idea she borrows from Hindu and Chinese cultures. She also invites readers to think about what community means and what's worth protecting and fighting for. N.K. Jemison is a highly nominated and decorated sci-fi writer. The list of her awards and nominations are so long to list here for this intro. However, we want to highlight her as the first sci-fi writer to win a triple Hugo Award for her Broken Earth trilogy series, as well as a multiple-time winner of the Locus Award in 2011 and 2018, for Best First Novel and Best Fantasy Novel, respectively, the Nebula Award winner for Best Novel in 2018, multiple-time Romantic Times Reviewer's Choice Award winner for Best Fantasy Novel in 2010 and 2012, and American Library Association's Alex Award winner in 2019 for How Long Till Black Future Month. Most recently, she won the Hugo Award in 2020 for Best Novelette, Emergency Skin. So let's get right into it. Hey, Vina, I am so glad we're covering these two books for this month's episode. I read Friday Black quite a while ago and knew I really wanted to talk about it. And I have been dying to read books by N.K. Jemisin. So what a perfect opportunity. 
Thank you so much for introducing me to Friday Black. I mean, it's unlike any other short story collection I've ever read. And we'll get more into that later. But first, a shout out to listener and friend of the pod, Camille, who recommended we read N.K. Jemisin this month, specifically her Broken Earth trilogy, which really is a must read. I mean, Mm -hmm. each time I finished a book in that series, I just wanted to read more until I finally got to the end. I was like, this can't be the end. Um, and so I'm really excited that Jemison is starting this new Great City series and that the first novel in it, The City We Became, is set right here in New York City. I know, definitely. <laughs> Friday Black was such an exciting collection of short stories to read. And thank you, Camille, for introducing us to N.K. Jemison's work. I can't wait to talk about this book. <laughs> um, so I think it would be good for us to start talking a little bit about the recent NPR Code Switch podcast episode about books that you shared with me earlier in September. Because oh, what yeah. was interesting about this podcast is a discussion on whether or not during this time of pandemic and social and racial unrest, it is better to read pandemic type books or escapist type (laughs) books. So to start off this conversation, for me, I have always read to escape. It was always a way for me to cope with what was going on around me. There's just so much going on in the world that I get fed in from the news, from social media, from talking to people on a daily basis, from my own experiences, that the only way I can keep my sanity is to read books that help me escape what's going on around me. Because quite frankly, every day I can't escape. And I tend to gravitate more to books that allow me to see a different world, a different life, a different experience which allows me to use my imagination in various ways, which is why I'm really a big fan of the escapist books that we've started. That's not to say (laughs) there isn't a place for books that are more in tune with the reality around us, but because we're constantly living that reality, I definitely feel the need to read something different in order to protect my sanity. You know, some of the books we've been reading since the beginning of this podcast have been really heavy and rightfully so because they illuminate the world around us and the issues that we are facing and have been facing for a long time. But I will admit that reading some of those books were really difficult for me to get through. And without the podcast and the forum to talk about them, I probably wouldn't have finished them, even though they were amazing books by amazing authors. You know, yeah. for example, I'm still trying to finish Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead after starting it back in 2017. It is such a good book, but it evokes such an angry feeling because he definitely illuminates slavery and the process of escaping and the desire to escape that I can't read it without this deep upset feeling that stays with me for a long while. And again, this is a testament to the power of his writing. However, I was able to finish his intuitionist because while it illuminated similar racial issues in a different time, it also gave me this world to escape to that held me. And I know I'll definitely finish Underground Railroad at some point, but it has made me realize I have to have a balance with my reads. So similar to reading The City We Became in Friday Black, because even though they touch on some of these critical points around those issues, especially around the social, racial, and economic issues within society, and particularly New York City, within The City We Became, the way they've written it, and especially the way Jemison's written The City We Became, They've done it in such a other world kind of way that they lost me completely in the work. And I really enjoyed it. 
That is an interesting observation about reading Underground Railroad versus Intuitionist. And I do agree that when I try to pay attention to everything going on in the world right now, my anxiety and depression skyrocket. So I often find I have to cut myself off from social media, Twitter especially, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, immerse myself in good books instead. So I'm grateful for this podcast and for our conversations, which I feel are focused on more creative rather than disruptive things. And, you know, I'm also glad for a break from realist fiction and nonfiction. And I love that N.K. Jemisin calls writers, particularly sci-fi and fantasy writers, engineers of possibility. Yeah. (laughs) And oddly, you know, I think that's why I only started reading in this genre in adulthood. I mean, you get so frustrated by politicians and business people, especially in wealthy countries, who fail to move the needle on problems like food insecurity or clean air and water or affordable health care, really basic human rights. And you realize that it's actually creative people like artists and writers who give us a vision forward, who are actually the ones coming up with really inventive solutions. Mm-hmm. All that said, (laughs) I'm sure you're not surprised that I've been on team post-apocalyptic reads even before this pandemic. Not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, my beach read last summer was Ling Ma's Severance, which came out in 2018. And it's this novel about a workaholic New Yorker who was among the survivors of a global pandemic called Shen Fever, which originated from factories in Shenzhen where people were forced to work under hazardous conditions. And those who contract Shen Fever end up repeating their daily routine over and over again until they die of boredom and monotony. And so it's this brilliant story and critique of globalization and hypercapitalism, but it's also so strange and just really inconceivable that a year later, here we are working from home and suffering from cabin fever because of a real global pandemic. I know. <laughs> so I also read Octavia Butler's Parable series after the 2016 election. And these books came out in the 90s, but the theme she explores, climate change, corporate greed, the extreme wealth gap, really resonate today. And in the second book, Parable of the Talents, there are these scary parallels in terms of what's happening politically in the U.S. right now. So basically, democracy collapses when a charismatic populist turned fascist president, Andrew Steele Jarrett, carries out a crusade against non-Christians and reinstitutes enslavement under the slogan, and I kid you not, make America great again. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it isn't surprising that earlier this month, Butler's Parable of the Sower made the New York Times bestseller list, although it's really shocking that she never made it on that list in her lifetime for Mm -hmm. someone who's won the highest awards in sci-fi, you know, the Hugo and the Nebula Awards multiple times. And she's really the only science fiction writer who's ever won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Wow. But, 
you know, ultimately, coming back to this conversation about, you know, pandemic reads, I do think that I feel reality too deeply that I'm unable to fully escape it. So for me, pandemic, post-apocalyptic reads, they actually help me interrogate this moment that we're in and understand it more. And by reading Butler and Jemison, you know, they remind me that I'm not alone <laughs> and mm-hmm. that we can overcome anything when we're part of a community that's larger and stronger than whomever or whatever it is that we're battling. So, yeah, there's an argument for both. And basically, it's what makes you feel comfortable, what helps you get through it, which is what I think they got to at the end of that podcast as well. (laughs) So (laughs) let's start today's book chat talking about Friday Black. So I remember reading this book earlier on in the year and just being sucked in through the first story, The Finkelstein Five, and how timely and saddening this story was as it provided a view of what could happen when people have had enough and no longer feel protected, thus pushing them to retaliate. And I remember finishing that story on the bus and just feeling so sad and so upset on the walk home as I turned that story over in my head and the points it was referencing. But I knew I was thoroughly engaged in this book and without disappointment. The beauty of Ajay Brenna's short stories is his ability not only to quickly and vividly build his characters, but also have them meaningfully develop in challenging, fantastical, and at times dystopian circumstances while providing a unique look at the real world themes in an engaging and enlightening way. You know, for example, when I think of the short story, The Era, this story pulled me in based on the concept that a new, theoretically better world has emerged where people are good and honest, but kept that way through the administration of good. Now, good is an injection which is meant to suppress emotions and keep people supposedly rational and therefore leading to this concept of a better functioning and transparent society. But what I found interesting is how the young protagonist is dealing with his own conflicts around the use of good, his apparent addiction to it, and how even in this new society, his socioeconomic status still has an impact on his interaction and acceptance from others. And it's very interesting that this story also highlights the impact of constructs from the previous era, such as classism, intellectual hierarchies, etc., that still pervade in what's meant to be this better functioning society. Yeah, and I mentioned earlier that reading Ajay Brenya and the stories in Friday Black was really an eye-opener for me in so many ways. I mean, you mentioned that story, The Finkelstein Five, and I felt like I, I did have to sit with that story for a while. It's like I had to read that story, put the book down, and then come back to it because it was yep. just that powerful. And I was just really most surprised that his voice and really his imaginative genre bending political and culturally critical stories survived, for a lack of a better word, and a writing MFA program. Actually, last week, there was this really provocative article by Eric Bennett, published in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, called How America Taught the World to Write Small. 
So I've taken close to a dozen writing workshops and craft seminars now over the years, and I'm used to reading stories that are exactly as Bennett describes, a literature of individualism and domesticity. And I've often wondered why, as he puts it, American writers still render the bedroom or kitchen more deftly than the zeitgeist or the world situation. And I was surprised to learn that it's because prestigious writing programs like the ones at Iowa and Stanford grew out of the Cold War environment and promoted this kind of literature that's friendly to capitalism and hospitable to democracy. Mm. And he writes about how these writing programs were exported to other countries and even funded by the U.S. government as part of anti-communist propaganda. Wow. Uh, I know. So this is something that just completely blew my mind. But, you know, I did go on this tangent because I wanted to make this fun connection. Because in the article, Bennett cites Gina Apostol, a favorite and often referenced author on this podcast, who um, studied at Silliman University's National Summer Writers Workshop, which was founded by two Iowa alums, Edilberto and Edith Tiempo in 1962. And in true Gina fashion, she likened the Tempos program to spam, you know, spam <laughs> the thing, um, an unhealthy American import preposterously offered up as natural. I mean, it's true. Um, at Silliman, she claimed she felt a kind of castration for a woman writer always has balls, you know. I mean, I'm just like <laughs> hearing Gina's voice um, and argued that the Filipino short story in English, so in this program, you weren't allowed to write in Tagalog or Warai or um, other local language, seemed too narrow for me or my country's interests. And Bennett writes, what the Tempos learned from Engel at Iowa, they codified at the expense of the literary fate of the nation and writers today are still fighting it. So going back to Friday Black, I found it refreshing that Ajay Brenya, like many of the marginalized writers who've been reading, confronts the problems in American society, even sacred concepts like individualism. And by making the personal political in his stories, he really makes us see the consequences of things like self-centeredness and racism and violence. And he forces us to think more deeply and have conversations about these issues. So, for instance, I think about one of the stories in the collection, Zimmerland. It's about an employee at the Injustice theme park Zimmerland named Isaiah Zay, who works at the most profitable module in the park, Cassidy Lane. Zay's role is to play a young Black man who's up to no good or nothing at all. And patrons pay to be the head of the neighborhood watch. There are echoes of Trayvon Martin in the story, including its title. Ajay Branya talks about how he was in college in 2012 when 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was gunned down in Florida by neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman for looking, quote-unquote, suspicious, walking around in their gated community in a hoodie. And he shares the story about how he and a friend were up all night creating these pamphlets, distributing them around campus. But then at the end of the day, nothing happened. They just saw a janitor sweeping away the pamphlets littered around campus. And Ajay Brenya says the experience taught him a lesson. Rather than saying, this is me and my wisdom and this is how you do it and live your life, what I learned is to ask questions instead. Because even asking questions creates some kind of truth. And 
we really see this in the story's dialogue where the patron asks seemingly harmless questions, but Zay's mimicry of those questions in his answers show us the sense of entitlement embedded in the patron's questions. I'm just going to read a little bit here. Now you wait just a second. I want to know what you're doing here. What are you doing here? I ask. The patron's cheeks get red, then his chest puffs out. He steps onto the sidewalk so we can be about the same height. I live here. This is my home. I belong here. So do I, I say. You still haven't answered my question. What is it you're doing here? You haven't answered my question either, I say. He moves his head to look around and focuses back on me. I just did. I live here. That's what I'm doing. Living. Now what are you doing? Same, I say. Living. Then I turn my back to him and keep walking away. You listen to me. I don't want any trouble. I'm simply asking you a question. He raises his voice, so I do too. I'm not answering any of your questions, I say, turning back to look at him. His hands hover near his waistline. Then I'm going to have to ask you to get on out of here. You in charge, I ask. You're the boss of the world. To you, I am. Now fuck out of here. What? I say. I said, get the fuck out of here, the patron says. He's screaming at me. The orgo metal on my legs and chest expands, and I feel it sinking to my body. The orgo metal hugs me tighter, and soon I can't tell where the machine starts and the human begins. Fuck you, I say, and it's easy to be a convincing actor. The orgo metal makes the pants that were baggy tight. Same for my shirt. I become a huge block of muscle. Something different more dangerous than a man. The patron's eyes go wide for a second. I locate. I'm a kid hit by a stranger. Then I walk toward him. I take two steps. He points a handgun at me. I locate. Your life is in the hands of someone who doesn't even know you and thinks you don't deserve it. Wait, I say. He shoots. Yeah, really powerful story. And even with Zimmerland, it took me a while to make that connection because I found that I was focusing on the idea in the story of using a theme park to try and contain or prevent another racist-driven death by providing this grim outlet in the form of a theme park. Uh, yeah, you it's know? macabre. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think Zay, there's points in the story where he is questioned about why is he actually working there, you know? And I, I do think he really believes that he's trying to do something good and provide a greater good until the park decides to admit children. And that's when it seems in the story, he realizes the park and its clientele will now be teaching children how to behave, to behave in this way, therefore negating any good he thought he was doing by containing it within this space. And I think the way Ajay Brennan wrote it, I could feel Zay becoming deflated, you know, as he reads the new Zimmerland mission statement and he starts to see the impact the park has on newly admitted youth youth, especially the interactions with one of the fathers who's come into the theme park and brought his son. Yeah. So the other story that stood out for me was the titular story, Friday Black. Yeah. So I think around the world, people associate Americans with hyper-consumerism, unfortunately. But I can only imagine what people think when every year, since at least 2006, 
They see footage of rabid Americans chomping at the bit as they wait (laughs) online for the Walmart or the mall to open, then trampling or even shooting each other to death as they race to the Black Friday deals and sales. So I I don't know if people there are familiar with it. Uh, Yeah, we are. (laughs) We're starting to get a similar Black Friday culture, but I know that people are trying to push against it as well and kind of keep Boxing Day for family rather than shopping. But it's as it should. Yeah. I mean, it's just gotten so gruesome and it just happens every year. Uh, And someone actually started a website called Black Friday Death Count. Oh, that's Um, so morbid. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who worked in retail for many years, Ajay Brenya just captures that insanity so well in Friday Black. And it's just effective satire because it's only a slight exaggeration of the truth. Um, So the narrator of the story, the store's most successful Black Friday salesperson, describes watching the customers waiting at the entrance to the store. Ravenous humans howl. Our gate whines and rattles as they shake and pull their grubby fingers like worms through the grating. Ever since that first time, since the bite, he was bitten by a customer. I can speak Black Friday, or I can understand it at least, not fluently, but well enough. I hear the people, the sizes, the model, the make, and the reason, even if all they're doing is foaming at the mouth. Most of the customers can't speak in real words. The Friday Black has already taken most of their minds. But then we learn that the narrator is a minimum wage worker, despite the store's million dollar Black Friday sales, who took the job after his mother lost hers. And that his motivation in being the best salesman is to win his mother the most expensive coat they sell in the store. It's a heartbreaking story for so many reasons, including how many Americans equate the accumulation of things with success and their value as a person, whereas their family's breadwinner. I mean, the Protestant work and prosperity ethic is just that deeply embedded in our cultural consciousness. Yeah, and I'd agree that Ajay Brenna was so vivid in his depiction of Black Friday and the very clever titling (laughs) of the story as Friday Black to portray the grimness and sheer violence that comes with holiday shopping period. But I felt like we were witnessing the beginning of the retail zombie apocalypse in this story. Um, He portrays the rampant, lustful, selfish consumerism so adeptly through the eyes of the main character, whose name we don't even get to know. And you end up rooting for him and all the sales assistants in hoping that they can make it out unhurt after Black Friday. Yeah. You know, having worked in retail myself while in university and in my first years after graduating university, I I wondered if I would have left like duo or stayed on like our protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, So Vina, you mentioned offline that the story Hospital Wear also resonated with you. Yeah. So in doing research for this episode, I had read about some of Ajay Brenya's life experiences, you know, where his family was one health bill away from getting their home foreclosed on, or where his older sister bought him his first laptop in college after he felt out of place when he saw all these other kids bringing their MacBooks to class, and where sometimes he couldn't take money out of an ATM because he didn't even have $20 in his bank account. And then where writing ultimately got him out of his retail job into a teaching position at his alma mater, Syracuse. And Ajay Branya says, 
People need stories because they can be hope machines. They stretch our ability to empathize. They train our imaginations. I think people need stories because they're pieces of life that might not otherwise be available. So when I read The Hospital Where, I did recognize it as a personal story, especially in terms of how transformative writing was for both Ajay Brenya and this unnamed narrator in the story. And as someone who left, you know, this career for the uncertainty of starting again as an older writer, I related to this story about the frustration and desperation and hope and freedom that are all simultaneously part of the writing process. And he describes this so vividly. What I could never tell my father was that I'd given myself to the 12-tone God. It had happened many years before. We'd been in a house that the bank would soon want back. The nights were dark because the gas and electric company had decided enough was enough. I've learned that many of the things I love, the comforts that made me feel good about myself, could disappear very slowly and also suddenly. I'd learned to hate then, to hate others for having things, to hate myself for not. One day, like an angel, the twelve-tongued god emerged from the midnight black around me as mysterious and vital as my own breath. I can give you new eyes, eyes that will work, that won't cry. I can put your hurt to use, twelve-tongued god said. I can give you the power to be anywhere, to heal the world, to own time, to turn lies to truth, to make day into night and night into day. You will have the power to change everything, to make the life you want. And so in this story, we see how powerful imagination, writing, and creating is for Ajay Brenya. In fact, the colophon at the beginning of the book is anything you imagine you possess, which is from a Kendrick Lamar lyric. Mm, yeah. And I definitely feel that with all the different stories within this book. I mean, what an amazing collection of stories here. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about them, especially, you know, the lion and the spider and through the flash, but I really want to get to our next <laughs> book. So maybe our listeners can shoot us a note either via email at theliftuppod at gmail.com or over our Instagram at theliftuppod and we can carry on this conversation there. So moving right along from Friday Black to the city we became. I was really looking forward to reading this book, especially as a member of Team Escapism. <laughs> and I am going to start talking about this book with a little bit of an anecdote. As I was reading it, the song Empire State of Mind by Alicia Keys popped up on my Spotify. And I just got all of the New Yorker feels. I yeah. mean, that song <laughs> stayed as my backdrop in my head while I read this book, no matter where I was. <laughs> and, you know, as the first in what's meant to be a trilogy, this book introduces us to the various boroughs of New York City as avatars. I loved how N.K. Jameson gave personas to each of the boroughs in the cities. And she included London with a shout out to Lewisham. Thank Yay! you. Um, so as I read the embodiment of each borough as a person, I started to think, which one am I the most like? Am I Brooklyn? Am I Queens? Am I Manhattan? Am I a little bit of all three, <laughs> given how I've lived between all of those three boroughs throughout my whole life in New York City? I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, I love her creation of the avatars as well, especially as a way for readers, you know, who've never been to New York City, maybe, or understand how just culturally unique each borough is, and to get a sense of that. And it's so funny. I mean, I've lived in Manhattan since I immigrated here as a teenager, but I feel more like I crashed the party than I feel like I actually belong in this borough, <laughs> especially when you think about all the billionaires who live in this borough. Um, and I mean, I sort of did. You know, I grew up in Mitchell-Lama housing, which was this program for working and middle-class people that's since been phased out. And then for over two decades now, I've been among the lucky few that 20% of people people in New York City who live in rent-stabilized apartments. Mm. And so in terms of the avatar that I identified most with, uh, surprisingly, it's probably Bronca from the Bronx. Oh. Um, yeah. You know, as an indigenous Lenape, she consciously tries to practice what her ancestors taught her about relating to other people and the environment. And like her, it really upsets me when transient people or tourists see New York as just this place to work and play and don't see that there are real communities of people who live here. I found myself nodding when she says, people still tell stories of how terrible the Bronx is. At the same time, somewhere, some realtor is talking up how amazing it is so that people with money will come and buy up everything. At the same time, there are folks who live here for whom it's neither terrible nor amazing. It just is. Mm. And I also relate to her being an artist and a curator, promoting art within her community, even if it means not getting the respect of a Manhattan-centric art world and art funders. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into what the book's about, what was it like for you reading The City We Became in a city in the middle of a pandemic, Tamara? A very, very welcome distraction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even though N.K. Jameson incorporates some of the real issues that face New York City and most major cities for that matter, like the impact of gentrification, uh -huh. racial profiling, stark inequality, to name a few, and she portrays this as a virus that needs to be fought collectively, I found myself mostly focusing on the characters and their development and what they drew strength from, how they found or came to an understanding of their purpose, and then setting out to protect the city and the people they love from this infection. I also loved how she incorporated help from other cities and almost made it into this federation of cities that needed to band together and ensure the health of the current universe. Yeah. And there were so many points I silently cheered at in the book with, you know, a little, yeah, or you know <laughs> it, as I read along. Uh, when the main avatar had the first battle, all through that fight scene, I could just see myself getting my back up, ready to say, don't mess with my city. <laughs> and you know us New Yorkers, we have a love-hate relationship uh, with our city, totally. you know, but we won't just let anybody come in and hurt it or talk That's down true. about it. So I just have to read out this part of the novel and the beginning and, you know, warning for our listeners, there it's very explicit. So, you know, cover your kitty's ears. <laughs> we got this don't sleep on the city that never sleeps son and don't fucking bring your squamous eldritch bullshit here i raise my arms and avenues leap the beast of the deep shrieks and i laugh giddy with postpartum endorphins bring it and when it comes at me i hip check it with the bqe 
backhand it with Inwood Hill Park, drop the South Bronx on it like an elbow. Oh, now you're crying? Now you want to run? Nah, son, you came to the wrong town. I curb stomp it with the full might of queens and something inside the beast breaks and bleeds iridescence all over creation. Then I shower the enemy with a one-two punch of Long Island radiation and Gowanus toxic waste, which burns it like acid. It screams again in pain and disgust. But fuck you, you don't belong here. This city is mine. Get out. To drive the lesson home, I cut the bitch with the LIRR traffic, long, vicious, honking lines. And to stretch out its pain, I salt these wounds with the memory of a bus ride to LaGuardia and back. Just to add insult to injury, I backhand its ass with the Hoboken, raining the drunk rage of 10,000 dude bros down on it like the hammer of God. Port Authority makes it honorary New York, motherfucker. You just got jerseyed. Sorry, mom, for all the cursing, but <laughs> man, <laughs> what a powerful introduction to New York City strength as an embodying avatar. Oh, I mean, I come on. Think of all the New Yorkers who could relate to this powerful depiction of what it means to be New York City. And I mean, how powerful is the city because of all the boroughs together, not just Manhattan alone. And you need them all on side to fight this creeping enemy, an alliance that is threatened by a very crafty enemy who preys on fear and prejudice. And we can see this throughout the book. Yeah, I really enjoy the language and the attitude in this book. Um, maybe because I'm reading it in New York, I actually felt like it was a hyper real version of what's happening here now. There were details in the book that were so timely and relevant. It made me forget that while it was published this year, Jemison actually started writing the book a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. For instance, the way Jamison turns the gentrification and homogenization of New York into a virus, like you mentioned. And, you know, the city really emptied out at the height of the pandemic in May, just as we were being encouraged to fill out the census. And it became clear, based on which neighborhoods were and weren't filling them out, that the wealthy gentrifiers had left the city and that many of them weren't planning to come back. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the frontline workers, restaurant and food delivery workers, those of us who don't have the means for a summer rental or second home had no choice but to shelter in place yeah. as the COVID-19 rate kept rising. Yeah. Also, early in the book, there's a scene in Inwood Park where a white woman infected by the enemy virus calls the cops on Manhattan's avatar Manning and his British Chinese roommate Belle, whom she accuses of doing drugs or blowing each other in broad daylight even though they're clearly not doing anything other than hanging out. And it gave me chills because it reminded me of the incident that happened in Central Park back in May where Amy Cooper, who's white, called the cops and Christian Cooper, no relation, he was a black birder, claiming that he was threatening her and her dog, which he clearly wasn't. But the fact that Jemison wrote a very similar scene years ago just underscores how these incidents, which keep cropping up, are just symptoms of a larger social illness that won't go away unless we eradicate it at the root. True. And I also like the way Manny handles that, where he says, I mean, we're not drug dealers, but if we were, it doesn't make a lot of sense that you just stood there filming us. That just doesn't sound safe, does it? But I think you filmed us because you didn't think we were dealers, because we were just ordinary people going about our own business, and it bothers you to see us comfortable and unafraid. 
which Hmm. is the point of the enemy, right? To continue to make people feel afraid and uncomfortable for existing in their own spaces, and then to use and perpetuate fear in order to sow division or weaken the resolve of these characters. I do think it's interesting that in the scene where we meet the Staten Island avatar, Eileen, she's on the phone listening to her dad, who's a cop and a descendant of Irish immigrants, tell her how sick he is of immigrants and how he just profiled and intimidated a man by pretending to call ice on him. And Jemison zooms out and describes the borough of Staten Island. Everything that happens everywhere else happens on Staten Island too. But here, people try not to see the indecencies, the domestic violence, the drug abuse. And then, having denied what's right in front of their eyes, they tell themselves that at least they're living in a good place, full of good people. At least it's not the city. And then this is juxtaposed with a scene where we meet Queen's avatar, Padmini, for the first time, studying in her room and worrying about finding a job so she could get an H-1B visa and not get deported by ICE. And again, Jemison zooms out and describes Padmini's neighborhood. This is just one building amid thousands in Jackson Heights. But here in this four-story walk-up is a microcosm of Queen's itself people, cultures, moving in and forming communities and moving on endlessly. In such a place, nurtured by the presence and care of its avatar, the borough's power has permeated every board and cinder block of the building, making it stronger and safer, even as the city as a whole totters, weakened against its enemy onslaught. I think Jemison does a great job of trying to unpack why some people distrust those who are unlike them and distance themselves from others as they pursue only what's in their self-interest. It's really about those with privilege who have an illogical fear of losing that privilege. And by showing us Padmini's world, I think Jemison is inviting us to imagine what the possibilities could be if we just stop acting selfishly, you know, if we allow more people to benefit from and contribute to this country. As Jemison puts it in an interview with the Paris Review, we are capable of creating spaceships that go to other worlds. We are capable of mining those worlds for resources. We are capable of coming up with technology that benefits everybody on the planet. We just haven't been doing that. We've been coming up with technology that benefits a few. What could we achieve if all six billion of us had a decent education and good food in our bellies? How much could we come up with? I think it would be amazing. I really like that quote by her from Paris Review. And it's a very interesting perspective. Going back to the avatars, I love the way Jemison develops each avatar and gradually builds their sense of purpose. And I just want to run down some of my favorite sections of the book for each borough. And I start (laughs) with this quote from Brooklyn. So lesson one of New York, what people think about us isn't what we really are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So aside from the avatar, who is the full embodiment of the city that we meet in the beginning, this person's all the boroughs included, We get introduced to Manny as Manhattan first, right? As he stumbles his way through trying to figure out what's actually happening to him. And I end up loving his sheer cockiness. But also there's this point where he realizes he is Manhattan. And as everything pulls him towards his first foray with the enemy, minutes after he arrives in New York City. 
as Manny climbs off the cab's hood and settles back onto the ground. Once again, he feels something waft through him from the soles of his shoes to the roots of his hair. That energy is the city. He understands somehow and it's part of him filling him up and driving out anything unnecessary to make room for itself. That's why his name is gone. I am Manhattan, he murmurs softly. And the city replies without words right into his heart. Welcome to New York. I mean, what an introduction for someone who's just moving (laughs) to New York City and getting ready to call it home. It reminded me of how many people who are New Yorkers are people who chose New York to be their home and hold it in their heart. You know, similar to Jemison, who in her acknowledgement notes that her formative years were in Alabama, but she spent summers in Brooklyn and has lived in New York City full time since 2007. And I also appreciate that Manny acknowledges that being Manhattan comes with the sins of its history. He goes, I am Manhattan, he thinks again, this time in the slow upwelling of despair. Every murderer, every slave broker, every slumlord who shut off the heat and froze children to death, every stockbroker who got rich off of war and suffering. It's only the truth. He doesn't have to like it, though. And then... If I kind of move on a bit to Brooklyn, Brooklyn, um, my favorite parts of her development are when she meets Manny and she's about to agree to teach him what it's like to be a New Yorker, as well as when she's fighting off the enemy who's trying to evade her home in Brooklyn. And it takes everything in her to stave them off. And I'm going to blend some of these passages. So it starts with, and here In this other realm, she looms over him, vast and sprawling, wildly patchwork and dense, not just older, but bigger, stronger in many ways. Her arms and core are thick with muscled neighborhoods that each have their own rhythms and reputations. Williamsburg, Hazardim Enclave turned hipster ground zero. Bed-Stuy, do or die. (laughs) Crown Heights, where now the only riots are over seats at brunch. Her jaw is tight with the stubborn ferocity of Brighton Beach's old mobsters and the Rockaways' working-class holdouts against the brutal inevitability of rising seas. But there are spires at Brooklyn's heart, too, perhaps not as grand as his own, and maybe some of hers are actually the airy, fanciful amusement park towers of Coney Island. But all are just as shining, just as sharp. She is Brooklyn. And she is mighty. And in this instant, he cannot help but love her, stranger or not. Then she is just a middle-aged woman again with a shining, sharp grin. And then further in the fight when she's fighting off the monsters. What Brooklyn is, though, defies the thing it attempts. She's one woman. But in this instant is also two and a half million people, 50 trillion moving parts, and the biggest baddest borough in the greatest city in the world. And the stuff that binds her, the will and allegiance and collective strength that screams, we are Brooklyn, is far more powerful than the force that holds the X-Spiders together. (laughs) I 
absolutely love this vivid portrayal of Brooklyn's <laughs> strength. And maybe I'm slightly biased because I was born there. But if we move to Queens, as you talked about Padme, she was the sweetest for me. And I think the most naive avatar and her love of math and this weight of her family's hopes and dreams on her such that this particular paragraph stood out for me for Queens in her early development. She goes, I hate this city. That's the irony of this whole affair. Me, part of New York, that's bullshit. Such bullshit. But I've lived here for like a third of my life. And my family's hopes are all tied up in me being successful here. So I can't leave it either. And that, Manny understands, is why she's become Queen's. And then if we go to the Bronx, the Bronx had reminded me of so many of my friends from the Bronx. And I love how Jemison left the Bronx so conflicted until she knew she had no other choice to join the other avatars. Um, But before she does, there was a passage that stood out for me for Bronca at the beginning of her transformation into the Bronx. And I know you mentioned her Lenape heritage. And I think all of that kind of comes into this particular paragraph where she says, this is a natural thing. She's the eldest of the group after all, and the city has decided that she is the one best prepared to bear the burden of knowledge. And yet, even though she knows what must be done, they must find and protect each other and learn to fight together. It's crazy, but it's true. She sets her jaw. She doesn't want this. She doesn't need it. She has responsibilities, a grandchild to nurture and spoil. She's been fighting all her life, goddammit. Has to work five extra years just to be able to afford a semblance of retirement, and she's tired. Does she still have it in her to fight an interdimensional war? The other bars will just have to look out for themselves, Bronca mutters. The Bronx has always been on its own. Let them learn what that felt like. <laughs> and then very, very last, Jersey City. I mean, I, I, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I loved when Venezia realizes she's becoming an avatar of Jersey City to help the other boroughs fight the enemy. And this paragraph was really sweet. She's a dirty, tired little thing, struggling in the shadows of greatness, but proud of what she has. Potential is what she's got in spades. And she stretches out stubby little piers and puffs a sunken chest of long vanished industry and tosses her crown of new gaudy skyscrapers as if to say, come at me. I don't care how big you are. I'm just as badass as you. And then when Paolo realizes what's happening, he says, living cities aren't defined by politics, not by city limits or country lines. They're made of whatever the people who live in and around them believe. And then lastly, Bronca confirms it for Venezia by saying, every single person I met from Jersey City says they're from New York. Not to New Yorkers, Uh because we're assholes about it, but to everybody (laughs) else. (laughs) And the whole world accepts that, right? Because to most people with sense, a city that's in spitting distance of Manhattan, closer than even Staten Island, might as well be New York, right? (laughs) And we're not forgetting Staten Island here, but I don't want to give away too much, especially since it saddened me with what happened with Staten Island's avatar. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that story develops in the next two installments. I think the way Jemison left it, it gives us quite a lot to look forward to and potentially talk about in a later episode. Yeah. And in her acknowledgement, she says this book is an homage to New York City and that she hopes she gets it right. 
So N.K. Jemison, if you're listening, you absolutely got the soul of New York City right. Indeed. <laughs> and she also says something I think many New Yorkers feel. I have hated the city. I have loved the city. I will fight for the city until it won't have me anymore. Yeah, so true. Um, I also love how some of the people who aren't avatars can see the enemy and they can therefore help the avatars fight the enemy while others are incredibly ignorant of the enemy and therefore they're easily influenced by it. And I think it's just an amazing depiction of current society. So let's talk a little bit about the enemy, right? And no one knows how to pronounce the enemy's name. I've tried looking it up and the names in that story are left very ambiguous in terms of pronunciation, but I'm going to go with the pronunciation of Relay. Relay. Yeah. And, you know, such a crafty character trying to pick off each avatar one by one by exploiting weaknesses or wielding the system to do her bidding in order to threaten or undercut each avatar's resolve or undermine their faith in each other in New York City. And, you know, the creation of this better New York foundation to push the enemy's agenda sounds all too familiar in real application. Uh Additionally, I found it really interesting how N.K. Jemisin incorporates elements of H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu as the basis for the enemy, given Lovecraft's very racist views and depiction of people of color in his sci-fi stories. I wonder if this was used as an ironic reference. I mean, I think we could spend a whole episode walking through this as a theme, but I'm also very curious as to what our listeners think. So, you know, folks out there, share with us and maybe we might do a special episode if there's enough interest. So I never read H.P. Lovecraft and didn't realize that the octopus-like enemy in the city we became was based on a Lovecraft character until I had to look up the phrase um, Squamous Eldritch. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Lovecraft does come up in the Staten Island chapter where Relay asks Eileen, who works at a library, if she's ever read him. And it makes sense that he'd be a kind of prophet for the enemy because he thought that cities where white people were forced to coexist, Jewish, Black, and Asian people, were the worst places. And sadly, many people in this country still believe this. I mean, I see posts on social media all the time by people who don't live in New York talking about all the looting and rioting and murder supposedly happening here. I mean, I live here and I can tell you that when I've gone to protests, what I see is actually a community coming together to fight injustice and keep each other safe. And it was just so satisfying that what defeats this formidable Lovecraft character, Relay, and her squad of alt-right hipsters with man buns (laughs) is the very thing Lovecraft feared the most people of different races and from different countries banding together and harnessing their collective strength. And I do think as we see more and more talented and best-selling Black sci-fi and fantasy authors emerge, and with public reception for shows like Lovecraft Country, it's going to be a lot harder to keep Lovecraft on a pedestal and to look the other way regarding his anti-Semitism, his racism, and xenophobia. Especially since, as you mentioned, it's actually part of and inseparable from his work. But you're right, Tamara, this could be a topic for an entirely separate episode. (laughs) 
So once again, great chat about two amazing books for the sci-fi themed episode, The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin and Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Thanks again to Camille for the N.K. Jemisin recommendation. If you have any other thoughts on sci-fi themed books or collections that you'd like to share with us, please interact with us through our Instagram page at the Lift Up Pod. And to close out, we do want to give you all a heads up on what we are reading for our final episode for the season. So for November, we'll be reading Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor. And to keep you going throughout the holiday season, we will be sharing with you our holiday book list. So keep an eye out for our reading recommendations on our blog, medium.com slash the lift up podcast or on our Instagram page at the lift up pod. Feel free to send us questions or suggestions through our Instagram page. And thank you so much again for listening to us here at the lift up podcast.